surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's go again uh, to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we praise Your name and we desire to be instructed from Your Word. You have given us Your Word as authoritative Word of God. It is this Word revealed at many times and in many ways through Your prophets under the Old Covenant and chiefly through Your Son whom You have exalted and sat at Your right hand. You have spoken to Your people in a myriad of ways and we have now all of Your Word contained for us in Holy Scripture. And we are to evaluate and shape all of our lives and to bring it in conformity with Your Word. We are not to place our own thoughts and opinions or our own traditions over it, but are to be in submission to it. And I pray, Lord, that as we particularly consider these words from teen and the rebuke that Jesus to the Pharisees for relegating the Word of God in comparison to their traditions. I pray that You would guard us from making the same kinds of errors. You may talk to people who are daily reading Your Word and bringing our lives in conformity to it. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Well, as I said, uh, today is officially Reformation Sunday, which is the, the Sunday generally that comes uh, around October 31st, which uh, most people probably think, you know, that's, that's all about Halloween, but uh, strong Christians know better. Uh, this is really about uh, the, the day, uh, 1517 was the year when um, on October 31st, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And this is traditionally understood as the day that sparked the Protestant Reformation and the eventual break from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Luther, and um, really the rest of the Reformers for that matter, He's known for many things. He's known for many different doctrines. Many doctrines came out of the Reformation, but one of them is the doctrine of sola scriptura, meaning Scripture alone. It is the doctrine that 
states that Scripture is the supreme authority over all matters of faith and practice and the Christian life. Luther famously asserted this principle at the Diet of Worms. He was placed, or excuse me, faced with the very real uh, possibility of being executed uh, because of his many writings. Writings that at the time Rome asserted were heretical. And he was told at this diet to recant his writings publicly. And in response, he said this. He said, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. Again, he states this with the very real possibility that if he does not recant of his writings, he will be killed. But here, he plainly stated that it was Scripture that stood over the Pope and over the councils. And it was Scripture that bound his conscience. It was not the Pope. It was not the council. It was not the church at large that stood over Scripture. Rather, all things were to be subjected under the authority of the Word of God. And this is really the basic idea of sola Scriptura. Many, however, are less familiar with the fact that it was only a couple of years earlier in 1519 at a debate in Leipzig. It's now uh, in modern day Germany. But it was at this debate in Leipzig with John Eck that Luther essentially unwittingly stumbled into this doctrine. Didn't realize that he had been holding to it. At this point in his life, Luther had already become somewhat of a firestorm and was sparking all kinds of controversies because of his writings that were criticizing the Pope and councils and many of the practices and doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And this would eventually lead to a public debate that he had with John Eck at Leipzig that lasted some 18 days. Now, I mean, even, you know, as you, as you think about that, I mean, it's, it's hard to get people to debate issues now for, you know, an hour or two. But of course, <laughs> things were different then, probably a little bit better then in terms of dealing and, and arguing about important ideas. But this, this debate lasted some 18 days, and that wasn't even the full debate. Uh, there was a debate that came before that with one of his co-laborers, uh, Karlstadt, that lasted another like 14 days before that. But all this came to a head. All of Luther's writings and his criticisms came to a head uh, at this Leipzig debate. 
And there they debated a, a range of topics, including the depravity of man, the doctrine of purgatory. But it was when they were debating the authority of the Pope and councils that Luther was forced to make, at that time, a potentially dangerous concession. Eck had been arguing for the traditional view that the papacy was of divine origin and that there is only one true church, which is the Roman Catholic Church, and that the Pope is the vicar or the representative of Christ on earth. It is the Pope and the councils define what is true. And it is the Pope and the councils that give authoritative interpretation of Scripture. But Luther, on the other hand, argued that it is Scripture that, it is, a, that is authoritative over the Pope and over councils and that if popes and councils do not speak according to Scripture, they are not to be believed. At one point in the debate, he even said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. As for the pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and councils. Now, when he made these arguments, without knowing it, he was making the same arguments that John Hus and the Hussites had made a hundred years earlier and for which was charged with heresy at the Council of Constance and then burned alive. So this is a pretty serious matter at the time. And Eck, for his part, knew this. And it seems to be the case that he knew that Luther did not know this. Was not as familiar with all of the things that had taken place at the Council of Constance and all of the particulars that John Huss had taught some hundred years earlier. And so Eck accused Luther of being a Hussite in this public debate. And Luther, in response, denied the charge more so as a matter of reflexive impulse because he knew that aligning himself with the Hussites he knew it might mean death for him. And at least initially, he was under the impression that the Council of Constance had not erred in its judgments about the Hussites. But then they had a lunch break. And during the lunch break, Luther went to Leipzig's university library and he read the Acts of the Council of Constance. And what he discovered to his surprise was that he very much agreed with much of what Hus had taught and not the council's judgments. And so when he returned from lunch to the debate, to many people's surprise, he essentially conceded and said, yes, 
I am a Hussite. At which point, the host of the debate, Duke George, as he thought of all of the past conflicts with the Hussites that had ravaged his land, many of them had broken out in violence. As soon as Duke George heard the concession of Luther, I am a Hussite, he jabbed himself in his own ribs and yelled out, the plague, the plague, fearing that there would be yet another return of everything that had ravaged his lands. No one, including Luther himself, had expected that Luther would align himself with condemned heretics in the Hussites. But he could not accept the authority of popes and councils over that of Scripture. After the debate, Luther would read of Hus, and he would later say in the letter, I agree now with more articles of Hus than I did at Leipzig. And speaking of those who agreed with him, he said, we are all Hussites without knowing it. In fact, he would later even become known as the Saxon Hus. And some 500 years later, that of course is what we all are even now. If we believe that Scripture is the only ultimate authority that binds the conscience, then we have to say with Luther, we are all Hussites. But of course, this doctrine of Sola Scriptura is not something that we should hold to just because Luther taught it, or just because any of the other reformers taught it, or just because it came from John Hus or anyone else. This Reformation doctrine is to be believed because Scripture itself teaches it. That's what held Luther's conscience bound. The Word of God. And that's what I want us to see today. We look at this passage from Matthew 15. I want us to see specifically that the Word of God teaches us that it is the supreme authority over all other authorities. And I want us to see how Jesus understood the authority of the God, particularly in relation to other authorities, and most especially in relation to tradition. Now, in our passage in Matthew 15, there is, of course, a conflict that arises between Jesus and His disciples on the one hand, and the Pharisees on the other. And this conflict is about the issue of ritual purity and defilement. The Pharisees, of course, were known as being some of the most strict Jews in the first century, one of the most strict sects of Judaism. And they influenced by their practices and teachings a vast amount of Jews that lived in Israel at the time. But what made them so strict was not necessarily that they kept all of the commandments of the Mosaic Law. Rather, what made them so strict 
was that they had developed all kinds of traditions and practices that were additions to the law that they believed you should keep. In the example that we have before us, the Pharisees believed that everyone should wash their hands before eating. And of course, as we hear that, you know, some 2,000 years later, we, we might think to ourselves, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea, you know? Uh, you want to make sure that your hands are clean. You don't get any germs on you. You know, you probably teach your children, wash your hands before you eat. But hygiene is not what the Pharisees are thinking about. This is not the emphasis on their teachings. What it was about was ritual purity. It was about defilement. It was about holiness. You see, in the Old Testament, the the priests were required to wash their hands and their feet before ministering in the tabernacle and temple in the presence of the Lord. And this wasn't so that they wouldn't you know, track any mud or dirt or disease or anything like that into the temple. It was a ritual that taught them something. You know, much like when we, when we look at Baptism, right? Baptism is not about, you know, bathing yourself and, and being clean. It's a ritual that teaches us things about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our union with Him. And this ritual washing of the about being pure and undefiled before approaching the Lord. It was about being holy in the presence of a holy God. And we see this, in fact, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 20, by the fact that they are told, the priests are told to wash their hands with water so that they may not die when they come into the temple. To enter into the presence of God in a state of uncleanness in a state of defilement, would bring His certain judgment against you. And so the priests were to do not just this ritual, but a variety of other rituals to offer sacrifices as well before they came into the presence of the Lord. But the Pharisees looked at these commands that were given to priests, and they looked at a verse like, Exodus 19, verse 6, where God says of the whole nation of Israel that they would be to Him a kingdom of priests. And they developed the idea that everyone should wash their hands before eating. Everyone should conduct themselves as priests, even outside of the temple. And of course, as you think about this, the reasoning sounds logical. It sounds somewhat biblical. They're putting different verses and theological points together. It sounds pious. You know, if God wanted the priest to do these rituals, clearly the rituals were a good thing. And as a people, we're all priests. So we should all do this good thing of ritual washing. But of course, even though that sounds logical, 
and it sounds as if it's good biblical thinking, the plain fact of the matter is that it was not. The Old Testament stated very clearly that even though the nation would be a kingdom of priests, they were not all members of the Aaronic priesthood. And they did not all have the same kind of access to the temple and the tabernacle that the tribe of Levi had. There were things that most people were prohibited from doing in the temple, and there were rituals that were exclusively given to a single tribe. And there are times throughout Israel's history where people who were not qualified or who were not part of the Aaronic priesthood, like kings, would try to engage in some of these works and God's judgment came upon them. But over the years, the Pharisees had developed this tradition rooted in poor biblical reasoning and interpretation, as of course all errors ultimately are, And the tradition took on the role and authority of biblical command. So what happens is that the Pharisees see that Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands. They're not observing the traditional purity ritual, which in their eyes means that Jesus' disciples are in sin. Because they're breaking the traditions of the elders, which were equivalent to the law of God. Now, in response, Jesus does not give a direct answer about the hand washing initially. He'll address the matter in verses 10 to 20. But first, he addresses the most important issue which is the fact that the Pharisees had elevated their traditions to such an extent that they stood in authority even over the Word of God. They claimed that their traditions were matters of righteousness. They claimed that they were being faithful and honoring to God. But what they were actually doing was submitting the Word of God to their own traditions. They were elevating their traditions over that of Scripture. And so Jesus responds in verse 3. And He says to them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then in verse 4, He quotes two commands from the law. One in Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment, and the other from Exodus 21, verse 17, one of the judgments that go along with the commandments. And he said, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And then he contrasts these commandments with another tradition of the Pharisees, 
that was used as a justification for breaking the commandment of God. He says, but you say, you Pharisees say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. What Jesus is speaking of here is what was known as the Korban vow, where property or possessions or sacrifices were at least said to be set aside for sacred use only. It was a vow that designated something of monetary value as a gift to God. And if you took this vow, the things that were considered korban could not be used for any common purposes. But what the korban vow was being used for in practice was as a religious excuse not to take care of your parents. So to honor your parents at a bare minimum means that when they get older, you are responsible for taking care of them. Just as they took care of you when you were a child. Right? You are, you're paying it back. You're showing honor to your parents by caring for them. But in order to avoid this obligation, which no doubt would require some financial support, usually through the use of property or possessions, the Pharisees would take the Korban vow, they would designate their property for sacred use, and then they would not use it to care for their parents. It's given to God. You can't use it. I'm doing something more holy, more sacred with it. It was especially a... a wicked practice uh, in order to use a religious excuse to justify not caring for parents and not obeying the Word of God. And so Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They are nothing more than those who honor God with their lips. They say they worship Him. They say they obey His Word while their hearts are far from Him. They don't really want to submit to the Word. And so traditions are developed that have an appearance of godliness while denying the Word of God. But what I want you to see especially here is the position of authority that Jesus gives to the Word of God over and against any other authority and particularly religious traditions that claim for themselves binding authority. It is Scripture and Scripture alone that sits in authority over man, over tradition, and over all claims 
of truth. The reformers were right when they said that Scripture is the norm, that norms all other norms. It is the ultimate truth that all other claims to truth must be evaluated in light of. And this was not to say that if something wasn't found in Scripture, it couldn't be done or it couldn't be believed. The doctrine of sola scriptura does not mean that Scripture is the only source of truth, but that it is the highest. It means that everything else must be evaluated in the light of it, in the light of its explicit commands, in the light of its principles, in the light of its revealed history. And this is especially true when it comes to matters that bind the conscience. There are many issues, for example, that are really matters of indifference. It's what the Reformers also called adiaphora. These are are matters that Scripture does not bind the conscience about. Doesn't speak to. Uh, Some people, for example, tie their shoes differently. Right? I only learned that once I became a father. There's multiple methods of shoe tying. Right? And, and one person may tie it one way and may believe that they're making a much stronger knot and the other may think they've got the quicker method. And you could debate that. And if you really got invested in that argument, I'm sure that you could discover the whole history of knot making. But scripture doesn't speak to that issue. That's a matter of indifference. You can tie your shoe however you want to. This isn't a conscience issue. But I think we also might consider as well the decision to pursue one vocation over another vocation. Someone who is wrestling with whether or not they want to be an electrician or they're going to be a a plumber. Well, Scripture doesn't speak directly to what your vocation should be specifically. You could be a plumber. You could be an electrician. And in both of those, you can honor God. Now, if it was the case that somebody is wrestling with whether or not they want to be an electrician or a drug smuggler, well, now it becomes a very clear scriptural issue. Scripture does bind the conscience. You would be breaking the law of God. You would be breaking civil law. You would be causing harm to others. You are in that pursuit in violation of the Word of God. And Scripture binds you on that very matter. But again, there are, there are matters of indifference in which you have freedom to do a variety of different things. So there may be matters of indifference where there is freedom, and some of those decisions can be held even with strong opinions but they are not matters in which, with the authority of the Word of God, the conscience can be bound. Again, if we think back to the Pharisees, right? if they had simply developed a practice of ritual washing, 
And they did this in order to remind themselves of the need to be pure and holy before God. There'd be no issue. There's no problem with that. We can develop all kinds of traditions for the sake of moral and spiritual instruction. Maybe during the Advent season, we determine to read a certain book leading up to Christmas just to remind ourselves particularly about the promises of God and the incarnation of Christ. And that becomes our tradition. And maybe we even commend it to others. You know, we say this is what our family does on a regular basis. We commend this to you. Maybe it will be helpful to you. But the moment we elevate that tradition to a position of binding authority, and especially if we use that tradition to set aside the Word of God, both of which errors the Pharisees committed, we have become, in the most technical sense of the word, legalists. And we have elevated our traditions over Scripture. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this was one of the key issues of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had developed all kinds of traditions, many of which were blatantly contrary to the Word of God. They had developed the practice of selling indulgences. If you buy an indulgence, you can purchase time for yourself or for another person out of purgatory. They had developed the doctrine of purgatory itself, which is not rooted in Scripture. They had developed the practice of venerating icons. That is, going to these places where you know it is said that this piece of wood here is the very piece of wood that comes from the cross of Jesus. And if you gaze upon it and worship it and venerate it, you can you can gain yourself some grace and some time from purgatory. They had developed the, the concept of the papacy and the ultimate authority of the Pope. They had made all kinds of theological developments down through the years. And the argument that the Reformers were making was that many of these traditions were either not explicitly sinful, but were binding the consciences of people and so becoming sinful, or the traditions themselves were sinful because they directly contradicted the Word of God. And they argued that the church needed to reform itself and that that reformation was to be a matter of bringing all of its practices in line with Scripture. Scripture holding the place of supreme authority. Again, it was not the intentions of the early reformers in the earliest days, and especially Luther himself, to split from Rome. They just wanted the church to be reformed. It wasn't until they were condemned as heretics that now you've got no choice. We have to depart. It's too far gone. 
we stay in, we die. It was an early reform movement to bring in line all of the practices of the church with the Word of God. And friends, that's what we have to be about as well as believers 500 years later. Our own church must be working towards conforming ourselves to the Word of God. Whether that be in our structure and our ecclesiology, our membership, our worship, anything. We always want to be those who are evaluating and reevaluating what we do in light of Scripture. But having said that, I think it's also fairly easy to look at the external and see what needs reforming in those areas. That's an easy task. That was the early work of the Reformation. That was largely the first generation of the Reformation. But as the Reformation progressed, new reformers saw the additional danger of mere formalism. What if we get all of our practices right? What if on the outside, it looks like everything is in line with Scripture? We have elders. We have sound membership practices. We partake of the ordinances. We sing. We read. We preach the Word. What if we do all of these things and yet we have no love for God? Have we truly submitted ourselves to the Word of God? And have we truly done the work of reform? What if we love all of the externals and we don't love the people? We have no love for the church. We have no desire to be around the people of God, has reform truly been worked? What if we have a love for doing all of the rituals? We have a love for coming to Sunday, worship, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and yet we have no love and hunger for the Word of God on any other day of the week. We are famished. What if we do all of these things and then we still raise our children like the culture raises its children? We still use our money like the culture uses its money. We are weak in prayer. We are weak in private devotions. Are we then truly reformed? Are we truly, at that point, biblical? Or are we just going through the motions and engaged in mere formalism? You see, one of the other principles that came out of the Reformation, or really the the post-Reformation, was that of semper reformanda, always reforming. And what this referred to was not the fact that the church may have externals that she's always trying to improve and reform and shape 
the reformers who, who held to this principle always reforming, by and large believed that the church in its externals had been reformed. This was coming from the, the Scottish Presbyterians, the English Puritans. Many of them w- could look at externals in the church and see this is conforming to the Word of God. But there was something more. There was something still missing. And this idea of always reforming communicated that there is always a need for the people in the church, those who may subscribe to the right doctrines, those who may be in a church whose structure is rightly ordered. It was a principle that referred to these people having a reformation not merely of externals, but of the heart and of the soul. The danger is of honoring God with the lips while our hearts are still far from Him. And sola scriptura, friends, does not simply mean that we formally acknowledge the authority of God means that we submit to the Word of God in every area of our lives. It means that we give the whole of ourselves to Him in the same way that He gave the whole of Himself to us. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, is that what you have done? And is that what you are doing? Are you checking the boxes of outward conformity? Or are you loving God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength? Are you content with the bare minimum? Are you content with occasional thoughts of God. And and by that, I don't just mean rare. I mean an occasion like this. This is when we think of God no other time. Are you content with that? Are you content with rare thoughts of God? Is your current state of walking with the Lord of having devotions with Him, of meditating on the Word of God, of being transformed by the Word of God, of conforming the whole of your life to the Word of God, of loving your wife in accordance with the Word of God, of loving your husband in accordance with the Word of God, of raising your children according to the Word of God. Are you content with that? Have you brought all of these areas, these spheres under submission to the Word of God. And if you have not, well then what you need to do, of course, is to repent. It is not simply to lament. Sometimes that's, that's what we want to do. We want the worldly sorrow that brings about no, no change. We want to say, yes, I 
I see this, this weakness that's, that's in my life. I see this area. It's, it's very sinful. I'm overrun with sin. Woe is me. What am I going to do? And then we do nothing. That's a worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings about change, brings about repentance. The very idea of repentance is that we change. We're not content with it anymore. And if there are areas in your life where you look at your, your own heart, your own life, and you are seeing these things that are not in submission to the Word of God, repentance is required. And repentance means that you are going to confess this to God and then change it from this day forward. You don't have to, to look back and see all of the errors that you have done. Those have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You've been set free from your sin. Now from this day forward, go and sin no more. You look at the Word. You have the Word search you. And you conform yourself to the Word. That's, that's ultimately what Sola Scriptura is about. Not just confessing that what God says is true, but then in that confession, bringing our lives in line with it. So, friends, I just want to exhort you on this Reformation Day to honor God with your whole life and to avoid the danger of being as a Pharisee who only honors Him with the lips while the heart is far from Him. He bids you to come near. And usually when we sin, what do we want to do? We want, we want to go far away. We, we, we go the way of Adam and Eve and we try and hide ourselves in the garden. But that's, that's the opposite direction. We're called to come near. Come near to God, receive forgiveness of our sins, and then we bring our whole selves in conformity to the Word of God in every area of our lives. We honor Him, not merely with the lips, but with our hearts. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask the blessings on His Word. Father, would you search us? Would you try us? And would you use the light of your word to shine in the darkness of our hearts and to expose the sin that is there? That we might be those who cry out initially, woe is me. But after having our lips cleansed, after having atonement made in the blood of Christ, we can be those who with the fullness of joy and with all of the forgiveness of sins now live our lives in freedom and in conformity to your word. Father, may we not 
be content with only being those who have professed faith in Jesus at one time. But may you, by your grace, by the Spirit of God, make us into a people who, in every aspect of our lives, are now seeking to walk with you and to obey your word. May we not be those who relegate the word of God to only a position of religion, only a thing that we do occasionally, but may all of our lives be all about Christ. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.